Spotlighting Hawaii's leaders. We want to bring in Governor David Ige. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Lieutenant Governor, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Mayor Derek Kawakami. Thank you so much, uh, Senator, for being here. Spotlighting the issues. Where is the virus right now in our community? How much is this overall going to cost the state? How are you responding to the community's concerns? Talk about the level of citations that you guys are writing. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Kalei Suji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs. Hello and good morning. Thanks for tuning in here on this Monday morning. We apologize uh, for the delay. We ran into some technical issues, but we are here now live with you on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. Thanks for tuning in. Yenji, this morning we are catching up uh, with uh, someone from the Honolulu Police Department. That's right. Chief Joe Logan is joining us live from HPD headquarters this morning to talk about some updates with the department. Uh, Let's bring him now. Good morning, Chief. Thanks for being here. Aloha, good morning. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, we always love seeing you, uh, and we know we have a lot to get to this morning. I want to dive right into the gun issue because it is something that so many members of our community have been tracking. Um, What can you tell us about how many permits have been requested and where you are in that process? So we have, uh, to date, uh, almost 600 applicants that are uh, in the process of uh, receiving their uh, license to carry. Uh, we've sent them back a letter uh, once the chief's rules were approved uh, through the mayor's office and myself. And so with that, there's uh, some criteria that they need to meet. Uh, and once they meet that, then uh, their application, their 90-day clock will start as they send in more data and, and want to continue this process. Uh, let's talk a little about just the overall uh you know, this topic and what we're seeing here. Uh, what can you tell us about, you know, just any revised um, concealed carry permitting process, what this process now looks like moving forward and, and how you ultimately want to manage this moving forward? So really the, the whole um, issue as it, it came about with the, the Supreme Court decision in, in New York has kind of altered the, the, the framework for the city and county of Honolulu and really the state of Hawaii and the future of license to carry uh, amongst citizens that are qualified. And so how do we do that? So my role really is to balance the rights of the second amendment and and what the constitution says, what the Supreme Court ruling has decided, uh, what uh, and what the community um, in in the realm of public safety because we haven't done this for over hundred years in the state of Hawaii, how do we do this, right? So how does the city and county do this, uh, balancing both? And so that's really my role uh, as within the state law as, as the county police chief within the city and county of Honolulu. And so what we've added to um, or provided that our citizens to weigh this, this balance is asking that these individuals that want license to carry, what they would have to do is they already have a permit to acquire uh, we, we're going to reevaluate their background check, or not reevaluate, but uh, update their background check, uh, update their mental health uh, assessments that they provided during this um, during their permit to acquire to buy their weapon in the first place, and then we're going to ask them to, to uh, if they haven't recently, take a four-hour class on gun safety, gun operations, and then um, the revised ordinances and the Hawaii Revised Statutes, Chapter 134 on firearms, and then Chapter 703, which is really about use of force justification. And so 
um, it's it's really updating the citizen that wants a license to carry on what Hawaii's laws mean, right? We are not a standard ground state. So how does that uh, affect the or impact your ability if you're out with a concealed carry firearm? What does that, what can you and can't you do? And so we want them to understand that. And then to, to do a certification on a, on a range, shooting at certain targets at certain distances within amount of time. And the time is really just to add stress, um, not to make them shoot a gun in two seconds or six six seconds, but more so, how do they handle stress? Because if they have, in fact, ever uh, pull out the firearm or brandish it in a manner to, uh, as they mean or deem necessary to protect other people and themselves, um, there's a lot of stress in that event. So that's really what this is about in, in, um, in trying to balance these two um, um, really difference of opinions. And so uh, that's my role right now. And so as we progress through that, we also have a certification, um, well, a verification of instructors that we want to, um, they're certified by, say, a national organization that certifies firearms instructors. So they would present their class to us. We would take a look at that, validate that they are, in fact, a current member of this national organization and they're certified. Uh, and then they're, they're certified to teach um, and provide this for our class and the uh the range instruction. You know, 600, given how big our state or our county is, uh, is not a lot, but 600 is certainly more than we've ever seen. Uh, and so I, I'm just wondering what advice you have to citizens, because I'm sure, and I'd like you to talk also about any enhanced training you have for officers and what they're going to have to do as they start to encounter these individuals. But let's say I'm at a restaurant or walking down the street and I happen to notice that someone is carrying a gun. I know these are supposed to be concealed, but uh, presumably, you know, you could maybe see something. Um, for the average citizen, I know for me personally, if I saw that, my inclination would be to Across the street, perhaps call the police. I mean, how how are you advising the average citizen who is not carrying a weapon uh, to to uh, behave if and when they interact with someone who is carrying one? Well, great question, Yunji. And so I think we would ask that you know if you see somebody out there who's obviously the concealed carry and the definition of conceal means that you can't see it or or it's um, it's unrecognizable to the average person um, in the event that it is noticed and you can see it, then I would ask you to call 911. Uh, and then what we would do as, as a police department is come to the scene and investigate. Um, so we need, you know, a lot of information of who the person, what they look like, um, you know, a description of the person and, and a description of what you think you saw. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll investigate from there. We've spoken to the mayor on this platform about uh, his thoughts on this. And one of the things that he had mentioned was just being able to limit the areas uh, where guns are available or where guns can be used. Uh, have you spoken to the mayor about uh, his thoughts on this uh, moving forward, just his overall plan, his vision for what he believes uh, the guns should be used, in, especially when it comes to restricting, restricting them in public spaces? I've had discussions with the mayor uh, and I was at the city council meeting uh, the other day or last week on bill 57 on sensitive places. And, uh, and right now I'm meeting with each of the city council members uh, regarding that bill. Uh, I think by and large, even, uh, you know, we absolutely, you know, believe in sensitive places uh, that are logical in nature, such as 
uh, government buildings, hospitals, schools, uh, of all institutions. Um, those where uh, our keiki hang out at, such as uh, museums or other activities where keiki can congregate um, to keep them safe. So we want, you know, those absolutely make sense. What becomes a little bit difficult um, for us on an enforcement level is when we're talking about private businesses and then you, you know, you're adding in the parking area uh, and if it's maybe in a, a, a shopping center or a shopping complex with multiple businesses, how is that going to uh, impact our officers' ability to understand, um, you know, who gave permission, who doesn't give permission? So that right now is what I'm trying to um, ascertain and work through. Um, so those are the things that I, I'm worried about our officers. You know, we already ask our officers to do a, a lot, and they're out there every day risking their lives and, and trying to enforce the law and do all the things that officers need to do. Um, and then to add another one where they've got to decipher through something that may be confusing. So how do we clean this up? How do we make it so it makes sense to our officers? So it's easily um, we can discern uh, where people can and cannot. You know, and on that subject, you bring up an interesting point. Let's say there is a shopping center uh, and, and there are businesses in there who say, you know, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to carry a, a weapon or, you know, you're picking up your kid from school and you need to go on campus. What do you advise those people who have the permit uh, to do in that situation? Are they allowed to leave the weapon then in their vehicle? Um, I mean, you can't predict all the places you need to go during the day. Presumably you would say, if you know you're going to that place, leave it at home. But if you need to stop and pick up your kid because they're sick at school, what do you do with your gun then? So that's that's another dynamic to this whole thing and how are we gonna operate through that? So the the way that the language in the in the law is written is really gonna impact how we enforce. Um, and are there um, are there avenues for exactly what you're saying, Yanji, providing that, hey, I didn't plan to bring my gun to this place, but you know, my spouse called, they can't pick up the kid, I have to go pick them up. Um, so how do we do that and how that's gonna operate is something I think we need to figure out um, as we further progress down this road of passing this sensitive places bill. I want to bring in a question here. Heidi's asking the question of, uh, can you ask if private businesses can prohibit guns in their establishments? What would you say to those restaurant owners, those store owners, uh, you know, who are wary of this uh, and moving forward, how they manage this type of change in, in overall legislation, but also just overall policy that they can, uh, you know, really formulate on their own? Yeah, so I think it's really up to the business owner, the person who runs that establishment and how they want to have or, or don't have armed citizens uh, in their property at that time. And so I think that's kind of where, you know, if they're in a shopping area where say the, the store next door, you know, I allow firearms in mine, but in my store I don't, or my restaurant, I'm, I don't allow it. So we have to figure out how that's all gonna impact, you know, the average citizen. And so these are the, the discussions I'm having as I meet with the city council members um, to help our officers understand how that works. But, you know, if you're a owner of a business and you don't want um, um, citizens to conceal carry in your establishment, um, then I think you'd have to let us know or let the public know how that happens. But how you do that uh, is your business. Um, and, and so we're still working through how that all works. I mean, presumably, if you hold a notice, if you put up a sign, is that enough? Or do you need 
you know, something else? Is there something that you would register with HPD? That does just seem like so much new ground in all of this. It, it is. It's it's kind of a it, it's it's a little all encompassing. It's a little um, difficult to to decipher your way through right now uh, because there's all these. Uh, what we call second and third order effects. If I make this decision, what are the other decisions um, that have to follow uh, to make this all work? And so I want to make sure that um, when Bill 57 uh, is passed in the future, is we how do we iron all those out so that yeah, it's least impactful one to the business to the citizen, but more importantly to our officers and their safety. Well, we know that this is a fluid process and there is a lot of discussion and debate that will continue on. So uh, we will continue to stay posted on this, but look forward to future conversations we can have about this. Want to move on to some other things uh, that are concerning and, and things that are happening within the department. One of the things, of course, is recruitment overall. If you can give us an update on uh, how staffing has gone with HPD overall, uh, if you guys were able to fill some of those vacancies and moving forward, how are you uh, looking to project filling some of those holes that you have within the department? So we we continue to recruit. We have about uh, just shy of 3,000 applicants every year. Um, and then through that and our processes of uh, looking at the applicants, their background checks, um, their ability to physical fitness, of uh, their um, medical situation and all of those and, and factor on on reducing that 3,000 to a, a, a number that our police academy can handle. So we, we do six academies a, a year now. And so every two and a half months, we're starting a new class. And as people finish that uh, process, they can get into the next class. And so it's it's pretty quick now. It's about three and a half, four months. It used to be almost a year long. And so we've whittled that down. Um, <clears throat> so it's not really the number of applicants we still uh, uh, attract, uh, you know, a large population of people that are interested in law enforcement. Uh, and then uh, if you went to the movies over the next uh, month or, or so, we have a commercial that's uh, at one of the movie theaters uh, that is out there attracting, you know, those individuals that are interested. And then, of course, we're increasing our presence on social media uh, to attract those interested in uh, police and law enforcement. So we continue. We uh, I think we have up to 92 recruits for this year uh, we're, and we're, project, we're projected to have one more class starting, uh, as a matter of fact, started today. So we have another class of 18 that are, that are coming in. And so with these smaller classes, we keep the attrition down um, because it's more of a one-on-one. -on -one. We can have uh, a few instructors, uh, you know, talking with uh, a small group of the officers if there's any issues or concerns they're having as they uh, go through this six and a half month recruitment school. The other thing but you're bringing up about filling vacancies is, um, is the number of people that may retire or leave the department for, you know, mainland departments. There are outside departments coming to Honolulu to, uh, for the, the name of diversification to find Pacific Islanders uh, to uh, attract them into law enforcement on the mainland. And so we have lost a few officers that way too. Um, and, but by and large, um, it's, it's almost a zero-sum game. We have as many retirees or those leaving the department as we do have coming in. So exactly, you know, filling vacancies uh, is is a it's a fluctuating thing because once you finish your year of training, um, the six and a half months of academy, 
and another three to four months of training with officers uh, to learn the job actually on the streets. Um, and then you get sent to a patrol element or assignment after that. That's when your number counts into the vacancy or non-vacancies. So it's um, even though we've got 92 in the pipeline, those 92 don't actually hit. Um, they'll hit at different times as they graduate and progress through the year of, of probation into what is an assignment. And so right now my focus is those uh, almost 90% of those are going into patrol. And so we're going to fill our patrol vacancies first. Um, and while the other uh, divisions and uh, yeah, the divisions within the department uh, may be a little short at, at times, uh, but we're, we're working through that. And then we still have to promote for the vacancies of those that we lose um, that are, in, you know, in senior uh, level ranking. You know, given all of that fluctuation in all of those different areas, what is the need right now? I know when you took the helm, it was around 300 officers short uh, of where you'd like to be. Have those numbers, I mean, given that you said that there are people who leave for uh, greener pastures on the continent, perhaps, uh, or who retire, uh, what are you looking at? Is it still around 300? Uh, when I took over, it was actually around 350. Um, it went as high as, uh, I think, 390 or 380. Now we're back down to 364. So it kind of, it's, it's one of those moving things that changes based on when uh, these officers move from the training construct into uh, what we call a regular assignment. Um, and so it, it, that's where it fluctuates. So at any given month, it could go up, it could go down. Uh, but right now we're plateaued around 360 uh, vacancies. And so we're holding, uh, it, it's not what we want to do, um, but I, you know, unfortunately, you know, people have uh, done this job for 25, 30 years, some even almost 40 years. And at that point in time, they're ready to, you know, find uh, retirement and enjoy life uh, after being, you know, in a stressful job for that long of time, uh, they've earned the right to, to, to retire. And so, you know, I want to help them with that. And as they progress through the department and, and let them leave. Uh, the department uh, with, a, uh, I guess, uh, the rewarding uh, desire of having served their community for a very long time, a, a significant number of, of years of their life, right? So uh, we can't, we, we want people to leave at the department at, when they're ready to go. And so. One of the other things that, uh, of course, that police officers have had to work with and, and the HPD has had to work with the county on is this development of the core program uh, and dealing with the homeless population. If you can give us an update on just efforts there, the communication that has been happening within those who are managing that program uh, and, and what you think long term uh, this core program will mean for the requirements of what officers are asked to do uh, when dealing with those types of individuals. So the Emergency Management Services manages a core uh, program. Uh, we support them when they go out to calls. Um, and so they're working right now in the downtown Chinatown area. Uh, and they've, uh, they've got uh, smaller operations working in District 6 in Waikiki uh, as there are, I guess, large pocket, pockets of homeless uh, or those going through mental crisis um, or just living on the streets for whatever reason they are at the current time. So CORE is working very diligently at that. Our officers that are in those areas uh, are doing uh, on a regular basis referrals, uh, helping 
uh, do either direct them toward CORE or direct them to a HONU program or to other outlets that are out there to shelter and place or shelter places uh, that can help. Uh, and how do we reach all of those people? If you look at um, District Six right now, they've they've uh, they did just in the month of September during the the initial phases of Safe and Sound, they've done 50 outreaches. Uh, they gave you know about 180 or 80 warnings uh, on uh, homeless people, maybe sit lie rules, park rules, uh, bus stop rules, and then they issued a number of citations and arrests, um, not just of homeless but of all people in Waikiki. And so. Um, Year to date, they've done about 1,200 referrals with the homeless through our community policing team just in Waikiki alone. And so uh, we're trying to make a difference in helping uh, the emergency management services, the core program, uh, as well as the city and county of Honolulu in helping these people improve their lives. Mm -hmm. I know we, uh we ended guns a minute ago, but I want to bring this question in from Wayne. Um, and he's asking, can you limit the type of weapons that can be concealed carry, i.e. no ACPs, only revolvers? I'm interested to know, uh, just expanding on Wayne's question, what what kind of guns will be allowed under this permit and what won't? So we restricted the, I mean, we, we're we not telling them what kind of firearm they can use, but it's a, a firearm, like a, a handgun. It's not a long gun like a rifle um, and so it'd be very difficult for you to conceal a rifle on your person um, and so what we're asking them to do is uh, we're not directing it could be a you know a derringer it could be you know any caliber of weapon that you have legally purchased uh, and that you you know you have a permit to acquire uh, then you could get a concealed carry permit for that we are running out of time, but one of the things that we just want to quickly bring up is an update on the uniforms overall. We spoke to Shopa representatives who said this was one of their top priorities that they heard from officers within the department uh, just about getting new uniforms updated. And we believe and what we've heard is that there are some that are in testing right now. Um, can you give us any updates in terms of updating the uniforms that officers are, uh, you know, will be wearing moving forward? So we're looking at um, what I'm wearing right now is what we call a class A uniform. Uh, we're looking at what we probably refer to as a class B, a more uh, working uniform for everyday activities uh, other than uh, presentations and other events that you may need this uniform for uh, when you're out on patrol. Uh, we've had the, the program comes through officers, you know, they submitted a, a request to, to look at a new uniform. Uh, we took a look at that as administration. Uh, we, you know, said that's a great idea. Let's take a look at that. And so now they've been out testing. I believe they have two different uniforms they were testing at first. Um, and now they wanted to bring in another two different uniforms. Um, I, if, and so based off of that, it's going to extend the program a little bit uh, onto we want to make sure that the, the individuals that are running the test are the same individuals you know, making sure they're testing all the uniforms so that the um, that the assessment they're giving is, uh, you know, accurate across the board. And it's not just uh, individual perception, you know, having somebody different test the uniform has to be the same person testing all the uniforms. Uh, and so we're still working through that. Uh, as soon as um, the final assessment is done uh, and the report comes uh, up to us, uh, then we'll take a look at that. and. Uh, if I think we're, you know, we're in favor of some kind of thing, so we're going to take a look at that 
um, and, and then approve that as soon as we can. You know, the end of the year is a very reflective time as we sort of look back and then look forward into 2023. I'm interested to know now that you've been at the helm for some time, uh, what are your reflections on your time uh, there so far? How has your relationship with the various uh, captains and lieutenants, you know, how is that going? I know that the last time you were on here, you said that you made it a point to call every officer on their birthday, which is pretty busy <laughs> considering how big your department is. But, you know, how have you, uh, you know, deepened those relationships and what is your sort of resolution, if you will, for the department in the new year? Well, the department, uh, you know, I've gone out to meet all the patrol units um, or elements, the districts across the island. Uh, we're working on the uh, divisions that make up the support of the patrol elements. Um, and I've you know, basically run into quite a lot of people just coming in and out of the station. And then as we made our rounds out and about, and, and you know, it's a great department. The people in here wanna serve, they serve for a purpose higher than themselves. They, uh, they wanna do uh, something uh, positive for the community. And that's really why they're in the department. And that's really refreshing to know that that's the theme that most of the people here in the department have, whether you're sworn or unsworn, you know, that's your reason for serving um, in, in the capacity that you do. Um, and so, you know, our, our lieutenants and sergeants, um, that's the heart of patrol. And that's where, you know, they guide um, our officers that are growing through the department um, and looking for promotion opportunities. Um, and so they they uh, provided them an opportunity to coach, teach, and mentor their young officers as they move throughout the department. And so that's kind of a pride thing with uh, supervisors to be able to train that next generation of supervisors. Um, and like I said, when I first came in, I'm already looking for my replacement, not that I'm in a desire to leave quickly, but I, I have to make sure that there's a pool of people within the department that are very qualified and capable of taking the chief's position uh, when my time is up. And so uh, those are the things that we look forward to. Those are the things I've asked the department to look at. We're almost done with the strategic plan. We're putting the final touches on, not quite ready for prime time yet, but uh, almost there. And so, you know, for me, it's it's really refreshing. The police department is, is a like I said, it's a wonderful organization. Uh, it's moving in the right direction as far as community policing orientation and 21st century policing um, um, techniques and, and observations. So how do we continue that? How do we, you know, we're still working with the changing the mindset from the warrior mindset to more of a guardian mindset. And so while that doesn't mean that the officer doesn't have the capabilities and responsibilities that they have to be the police officer to enforce the laws, but a, um, a slight change in mindset as to uh, they're protecting everyone, uh, even the, the one that may be perpetrating crime. Um, to make sure that everyone can go home at the end of the evening. Now, somebody might go to jail first, uh, but in the end, they all get to go home. And so how do we do that as a police department? Those are the things we're working on. It's very refreshing that that attitude permeates the police department uh, and we'll, we'll continue to push that. What's your Joe Logan? Thank you so much for spending some time with us here on this Monday morning and for updating us on all the things that are happening at HPD. Uh, we appreciate uh, your time here this morning and we look forward to more updates uh, as we enter the new year. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Aloha. Good to see you. Thank you.
Well, interesting, Ryan. That, that was a really interesting uh, thought that he ended on there, that idea of shifting from a warrior mindset to a guardian mindset. And you really hear about the culture that he is trying to perpetuate at HPD. Uh, on a practical level, he is facing a lot. Of course, he talked about all those vacancies that are still there with attrition and people, you know, uh, getting recruited to the mainland. And then also, of course, just people naturally retiring. They are still over 300 uh, percent, over 300 vacancies there at HPD. They are making some progress with restructuring the recruitment classes, but still a lot to do there in trying to get more officers. His focus, he said, is on patrols, and that's where they're doing the most staffing right now. And then, of course, there's the issue of gun permits. Yeah, the concealed carry uh, law and all the changes that are happening there, obviously something that is occupying the chief's time uh, and, and something that he is working, as he said, with the mayor as well as the city council to figure out some of the more specific languages, uh, the all these different variables that are involved. We went through uh, a number of different scenarios. If you missed any portion of this conversation, we encourage you to go back to hear the chief's thoughts on just some of those uh, you know, different situations that people may be placed in, business owners, as well as just the everyday citizen and what they may see and encounter on the streets with somebody that they see that may have a gun. Uh, obviously, there is a lot to be ironed out there. And he says that the talks continue uh, with the city council as well as internally to figure out how they are going to be managing this moving forward. One of the things that he expressed concern about is that HPD and the officers uh, already have a lot on their plate in the things that they have to tackle on a day-to-day -day basis and within their scope of responsibility as officers. And adding this into that uh, also will create a more training that needs to be done uh, and something else that the department will have to take on and have to figure out, noting that, that there is a lot, obviously, that these officers will need to be trained on in order to best, uh, you know, work through uh, when when faced with these types of situations. Right. And, you know, the time is the clock is ticking. Uh, he is under a mandate, of course, with the Supreme Court decision. He has to answer those uh, nearly 600 people who have submitted permit applications uh, as to what his decision is going to be. He did say that there will be uh, some mental health and background checks with that permit, along with four hours of gun safety training to make sure that those folks understand the laws here in Hawaii, that there is no standard ground law, for instance, um, and just putting them into some scenarios where he sees how fast uh, they respond with stress uh, when you add a gun into the mix. Of course, that is a very, you know, a lot, a lot to think about. So it'll be very interesting to see how this goes moving forward. Also interesting because each of the counties are all facing this and different, you know, the different county councils are looking at how to perhaps restrict sensitive areas. There is talk perhaps of having a statewide uh, sensitive areas law so that it would be consistent, you know, island to island. That's something that we'll ask our guests later this month about Ron Kochi and Scott Psyche, of course, uh, the Senate president and speaker of the house. Is that something the legislature could take up now that we are facing this scenario? So always great to catch up with Chief Joe Logan. We appreciate his transparency and willingness to come on. On Wednesday, we are going to be focusing on fentanyl, an important issue, especially with the holidays, uh, more people going to parties. Uh, and we have heard a lot about fentanyl in recent months. Gary Abuta, who is the former Maui police chief, and now he runs the Hawaii High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. He's laser focused on fentanyl and he's going to be talking about how it's affecting us here in Hawaii and what you can do to protect yourself and your family. Yeah, we look forward to that conversation as well as the rest of this month. We have a number of guests that will be joining us here on Spotlight Hawaii. 
Uh, we always appreciate those viewers who continue to loyally tune in and ask your questions. Uh, we look forward to another great month of conversations ahead. Until then, uh, until Wednesday, have a great week, and we'll see you right back here at 1030 on Wednesday for another episode of Spotlight Hawaii. Until then, take care and aloha. Aloha. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long Strugs.